Hey everyone, I'm Nate, and this is the CMB Podcast, session number nine. Welcome to the CMB Podcast, a podcast designed to serve people of faith who make music. If you're looking for practical and inspirational ideas to help you in your musical craft, then look no further. ChristianMusicBlog.com is all about helping you think differently about creativity through eyes of faith as you learn how to establish healthy musical habits and disciplines, fueling your creativity and making you more prolific for the glory of God. And now for your host, Nate Fancher. What's up, everyone? Nate Fancher here with ChristianMusicBlog.com and NateFancher.com. I don't often talk about that site on the podcast, but just in case you want to learn a bit more about me, you can visit my personal blog and... Um, I talk a little bit about everything there, but it's not always the most current in terms of how often I post, but you can check out my music and some other things that are happening outside of CMB, and um, that's natefancher.com. Also, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to nateonfacebook.com if you want to come say hi. I'd love to to say hi back to you. Um, If you're on Facebook every day, just go to nateonfacebook.com, and you should find my Facebook page. All right. This is the ninth episode of the CMB podcast, and in this episode... I share with you a conversation with a friend of mine that I recently had about his new book, Doxology and Theology. His name is Matt Boswell. He's a pastor on staff at Providence Church in Frisco, Texas. He's a worship leader, a songwriter, and he's also the main contributor and editor of a blog with the same title, doxologyandtheology.com. They also have just started a a biennial conference Uh, they do every two years And um, they had one last November. I was unable to go, unfortunately. But the next one is 2014, and I am definitely planning on going to that. Um, But his book, Doxology and Theology, How the Gospel Shapes the Worship Leader, is solid. And um, he brought in some other guys to contribute to it. Um, They write various chapters, um, like guys like Andy Rozier, Aaron Keyes, Stephen Miller. Uh, Mike Cosper has a great chapter on the worship leader and creativity. Um, that would definitely be applicable for for you guys who are subscribers to this to this podcast. Um, also, Matt Papa, um, he's a guy that's that's from my neck of the woods in North Carolina, and um, his chapter chapter five on the worship leader and mission is hugely important. So I encourage you to pick up this book, Doxology and Theology. You can find it at Amazon.com. You can buy the Kindle version or the paperback. And uh, before I get to the conversation, we're going to get right to that conversation in a second, but I want to read a section from the first chapter. And this really communicates the heart of the book. He writes, In the late 20th century, between the rise of the praise and worship movement and the dawn of the seeker-sensitive church, the modern expression of the worship leader was birthed. Shaped by influential songwriters and later by Christian pop stars, the song leaders of churches went through a tremendous Reformation. While there are both positive and negative aspects of these developments, there remains great confusion over the role of the worship leader. Are we pastors who sing or artists who pastor? What does our theology say about the role of worship and specifically the worship leader? After talking with friends about this around the country, it became clear that there was a longing in the church for theological worshipers with a blazing passion for truth and the glory of God. Worship should not be driven by pragmatism, but informed by God's word. There must be, therefore, a marriage between theology and doxology. This is something that resonates with me personally, guys. I love uh, the heart of this book. I have a real zeal for robust, theologically saturated music. 
And um, so we're going to get right to this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. We talk about a lot of different things. And um, I'll see you on the other side where I have some other links to mention and some more information on all that Matt is doing and um, all that you can find out about doxology and theology. So here's my conversation with Matt Boswell on the ninth episode of the CMB podcast. Well, I'm here with Matt Boswell. He is a pastor. He is a family man. He loves his, his wife and his kids. How many kids do you have, Matt? We just had our fourth seven months ago. That is awesome. Yeah. Young Cannon Knox bringing up the rear. <laughs> All right. Very cool. He's also a songwriter. You've released how many? Four, four albums? Four projects? Gosh, that might be true. I've never added them. Yes, that would be true. Yep. Yeah, four. A couple of full links, an EP, and um, and yeah, I would love to talk about some of that today, as well as your new book that has just come out at the time of this recording, Doxology and Theology, How the Gospel Forms the Worship Leader. So um, thanks for being on the podcast with me, Matt. Appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm just thrilled for what you're doing to encourage musicians and worship leaders and church musicians through this podcast. Cool. Well, why don't we start by... Um, having you just share with us how you came to faith in Christ, a little bit of your personal story, and maybe how that ties to where you are today. Yeah, I grew up the son of a Southern Baptist pastor in Texas and um, grew up with a deep love for the Word of God, grew up with a deep love for missions, and um, I became a Christian when I was seven. We were actually away from Texas for a few years, planting a church in Richmond, Virginia, um, and felt convicted of sin and knew that I needed a Savior when I was seven, and um, God saved me. And it quickly you know, developed a love for, a further love for the Word of God, love for the church, for the people of God. Also became a Pharisee at a very young age. Um, that also is a part of, of my story, is just continually learning to rely upon the gospel as the only source of identity, not finding validation or worth in obedience to the law or walking in my own, you know, perceived faithfulness to God. Um, but I became a Christian at seven. And that work was long and still is long at 33. I started, um, you know, leading our student ministry in junior high. I started leading worship for um, our student ministry my sophomore year of high school. Ended up going to another church my junior and senior year and leading worship in their, you know, main worship services. Um, Was part of church planting between 18 and 22 and landed at a final church plant of being a part of, and I was there for nine years. And um, I just saw the Lord bless and grow that congregation and then was at, a, at another church here in Dallas for a brief season before helping come to this church plant, Providence Church, uh, here in Frisco, which is a church plant from the village, here, in, another church here in Dallas. Cool. That's great. So you were pretty quickly thrust into to ministry, and uh, pastoral ministry was always something that you felt called to do? I would say so, yeah. Even from a young age, I remember staying at my grandparents' house, uh, in East Texas, and going back to this back room and um, copying a commentary. I think it was a John MacArthur commentary at the time. 
and coming back into uh, the main living room and showing my dad my first sermon that, quote, unquote, I had written and um, asking him what he thought of my first sermon. And he told me he thought it was pretty good and uh, keep working on it. (laughs) (laughs) Gracious. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. That's great. So you've been writing songs for most of that time. When did that start in terms of your musical journey? Started. I, I, so I learned to play the guitar so that I could lead in congregational worship. And I started writing songs immediately. I was heavily influenced by the Vineyard Movement, um, specifically pertaining to style and simplicity. And those are, the, you know, so even today, the hymns that I write are very simple um, the arrangements that I do, very simple. Uh, what I value most in congregational worship is singing, is the people of God lifting their voices to Him. So because that's true, uh, all the arrangements that I would do are extremely simple. Um, so I started listening to the Vineyard and writing songs kind of in that style. Um, probably a little less content-oriented at the time. Um, and then over the years, paid more attention to gave more uh, emphasis on on the writing of songs. It would be a bit more substantial than, than the songs I would write, say, as a teenager. Awesome. Your new book, Doxology and Theology, How the Gospel Forms the Worship Leader, has just been published May 1st. And um, you, had, you had some other guys contribute to that. Um, it's, I think, one way it's described is by worship leaders for worship leaders. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about that and, and the vision behind that? Yeah, so looking at the landscape of kind of, you know, the gospel-centered movement or um, new Calvinism, whatever the kind of flag that it would be flown under, I just saw God moving very in a unique way through congregations around the country. And um, just have, you know, by God's grace, a relationship with, with godly men who are leading their congregations in song. And thought, how powerful could it be if we gathered collective voices rather than each try to do um, kind of our own thing? So this was kind of a first fruits toward that effort. Uh, so the book actually began as an idea about a year and a half ago. And um, yeah, today, of course, the book is released. But along the way, it, it turned in also to a conference and um, actually, hopefully, Lord willing, a series of conferences, an entire series of books, a series of records. Um, and really, it is a collective. It's a coalition more than anything. It's not um, me at the helm. It's simply um, a conversation that is being facilitated through the lens of doxology and theology. So the book came by premise of just knowing these men and knowing how passionate they were uh, pertaining to specific areas of the, the DNA, the life of a worship leader. And um, within 24 hours, the entire outline of the book was given and all the guys were signed up and said, yeah, we'll write the chapter on whatever the topic was. So whether it's having Matt Popper write on international mission or Aaron Ivey, Austin Stone writing on justice and the worship leader or Michael Bleeker at the village writing on the word of God and the worship leader. I just knew these men and I know their DNA enough to know they're extremely passionate about those specific topics. Uh, not only those, but specifically the Lord's given them unique voice into those into those conversations. That's so cool. Yeah, I know um, you had a great collection of guys um, who were who were speakers at the conference uh, last year. Um, tell me why. Now, I I personally know why you had him at the conference, but I'd love for you to kind of unpack a little bit 
why um, a worship leader needs to learn from a guy like Mark Dever. Yeah, so uh, why Mark Dever? Mark's had a, I mean, indelible um, mark on my own understanding of what is the church, how does doctrine form the people of God. Um, other people would be in that conversation too, but Mark in a unique way. And um, so why do worship leaders need to learn on the practice of leading worship from primarily preaching pastors? This comes through the lens of my theology of worship being um, when you have a robust view of a congregational gathering, everything comes into its rightful place. So in many expressions of the modern church, singing is elevated to a place that it's not meant to be. Um, in others, even a sermon can be um, lifted to a place that it's not meant to fulfill. So if we have the Word of God informing what we do from beginning to end, then everything finds its rightful place in that line. And um, the worship-leading community has a lot to learn from um, the pastoral or theological uh, community, uh, whereas there is, in many senses, a, a line of separation, whereas I think biblically you, you don't see any room for that. So there's a trying to marry doxology and theology. So doxology being uh, the, the rightful praise of God, uh, the glory of God, and then theology, of course, the practice of uh, of knowing God with, with your mind. So we, we know that these two things are interdependent upon one another. All theology leads us to doxology, and doxology, apart from theology, is just emotionalism. It's just existentialism. So we, we, we see the, uh, the wedding of those two things. Yeah, that seems to be a real um, movement these days, especially with the resurgence of hymns. And um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the recording project that the Gospel Coalition has just gotten behind uh, with, with your help and, and some of the guys that you already mentioned. Yeah, so the Songs of Luke project uh, was really special. The first time that I know of that a group of songwriters who are practitioners of, of, of worship in their own churches have written toward a specific cause, specifically expositional songwriting. So, and what I mean by expositional songwriting is I think this is probably the most faithful way to write hymns for the church today. Um, but it's, it's just, it's an expression of art that is so tied to scripture that apart from the text, it's meaningless. So, um, my contribution to it was small. I wrote two hymns, both co-written, one with D.A. Carson, who's one of, um, in my estimation, one of the greatest living theologians today, and the other with my friend Matt Papa. Um, the hymn that I wrote with Don Carson was on Luke 24, where Jesus points to himself as the summation of the Old Testament law and psalms and teachings. And then Papa and I wrote um, a really fun hymn, first time we've ever tried to walk through a, one so narrative-focused, uh, walking through Luke 15 through four different parables and trying to weave those together in a song. And um, both of those are really special songs. So I was honored to be a part of uh, the Songs for the Book of Luke project. That's awesome. So how is that in terms of the recording side, production side? Those were pre-recorded by each songwriter and just sub submitted, or did you guys go back and record those? So um, it was done in layers. So the music, the majority of the instrumentation was recorded at a, at a, at a studio house in El Paso, uh, then we flew in and did vocals, the majority of us, to Louisville. Um, Mike Cosper is one of the elders at Sojourn Community Church there in Louisville, and he's also the producer of this record. 
So we flew in and um, recorded vocals there. So it was done pieced together. You are a student at Southern Seminary, correct? Or are you, are you done with that now? I am still a student at Southern Seminary. I have a question about that in, in regard to, um, in re- yeah, this whole doxology theology thing, it's, it's really on my heart personally. But what would you say to someone who's musical, who feels a love uh, for songwriting and, and leading worship, but they, they quite frankly feel overwhelmed when it comes to theology? Um, should they go to school? Maybe that maybe it's later in their life. Should they should they pursue a seminary degree? Um, how would you encourage that type of person? I mean, uh, what a great question. I, I think it'd be very difficult to just sweep across the board and say yes, everyone should go to seminary. Um, I, I think there is even in my own experience of seminary being so tied to a local church and then also going through seminary has been very important experience. Um, so of course I didn't pack up our family and move to Louisville. I stayed here in Texas and, and I go by correspondence and that has its own set of challenges, but I do think it would be important regardless of, um, of the stage of life that, that, that men who lead the people of God in worship would be so convinced that we have a desperate need. We are a dependent people from first to last. And so we have a need to continue to grow and to mature in our understanding of who God is and then how we lead his people in the worship of Jesus. So um, seminary, I think, is very formative. Um, For me, you know, a lot of guys would say you go through seminary and you come out extremely dogmatic and and, um, angry or bitter. But honestly, so I've been at seminary for the last couple of years and it's been the most humbling thing um, to see reasonable conclusions from a text that I might interpret one way and to see there are other ways to interpreting some things, uh, though they may be wrong. I'm joking, Nate. That's um, but I, I think it's been really a, a, a just a really helpful thing for me in, in spending time set aside to walk through systematically specific areas of study. And the School of Biblical Worship at Southern Seminary has been an amazing context to do that. Well, I wanted to um, also talk about your passion for leading men with regard to leading their families in worship. I uh, was honored to hear you you speak at the Forge Conference about this topic and was personally very challenged. And um, I'm thinking of guys who who could be listening to this and and maybe even maybe even moms, you know, who don't have their husbands around. Um, how can they learn to lead their kids? How can they learn to lead their families as worship leaders? I mean, that's a great question. So my understanding of worship is, is a very holistic approach. That comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, where you have, um, through heart, soul, and mind, the totality of man being commanded to respond to God in worship. And then we're, we're told how that looks. That looks through like going and coming and, and um, morning and evening and um, throughout the entirety of our lives where the Word of God and the things of God are being talked about. So for in our home, that looks, it's really simple. We have four kids, you know, six and under. So this isn't a lengthy um, liturgical time for us in our home. But, but it's very important for me if I'm going to lead our congregation in worship for me to first lead my and shepherd my own heart, to shepherd my wife, and to shepherd our children um, well. And that only happens in an environment of grace. But um, I want to lead them well, and I want worship to be um, the rubric of our family. 
And so for us, every night, of course, we're doing this as we go and as we as we come. So in the car, this can look like, um, you know, Avery, who's one of my twins. She is five. She asked me on the way home from a soccer game a couple of days ago, um, Dad, does God make you say everything that you say? And I said, well, uh, so I'm trying to explain to her the doctrine of concurrence uh, in a five-year-old term. So I said, kind of. And as soon as I said, kind of, my son, who's sitting in the back of our car, yells out, God knew you would say that. <laughs> and, uh, and I just died laughing. I mean, so there's those moments of just being, and we're just, you know, in the normal routine of life, where we're talking about the things of God. And so how does God's providence and our will work together? And then, um, and then there's times in the evening, and even in the morning, in the evening, when we, we gather around, we open up God's Word intentionally, and we read very short passages. Right now, we're going through the Gospel of Luke. Um, and so I have this theory of don't study alone. So because I was taking this class, uh, the Gospel of Luke, through the TGC conference and Southern Seminary, because we were writing songs for the book of Luke, our family's also going through that as well. I'm not the smartest guy in the room, so I've just got to keep things very simple. And so everything for me is Luke right now. So our kids, we're in, we're in chapter 13 right now. And um, so we're opening up God's Word, and I'll read a short part of Luke's Gospel and then we will we'll pray together. We take prayer requests from the kids, pray for things that are going on in my son's school or with our neighbors who are praying to come to Christ or um, uh, any, any kind of matter that's at hand. And then we sing together and we sing, you know, goofy scripture songs. We sing hymns. Um, we sing the doxology before we go to sleep every night. Um, so there's just a, a rhythm of reading God's word and praying together and singing together that is present in our home. And, you know, my kids are small. So by God's grace, that'll be their experience growing up in our home. I want them to see that uh, dad is the guy who's pastoring our church and leading in worship. And he's also leading us and leading us in worship. Really, really good. You know, as you talk about worship, um, clearly, even in what you've just described, you have a a big definition of worship. You included scripture reading, you included prayer, and then you talked about singing. What would you say, um, I, I would love to hear you speak to kind of the current landscape of what might be called the worship music industry and just some of the definitions out there. You know, we could have a long conversation about that perhaps, but what encourages you on one hand and what concerns you on the other? Um, I love seeing the Word of God become prominent in so many churches. I love to see that churches are being led by men out of conviction. I love to see how um, so many congregations are being shaped by the gospel in how they gather and how they structure an order of worship, how they structure their liturgy. Uh, I'm thankful for the resurgence of conversations like this that are happening, talking about what it is to lead worship, what a worship leader's life should look like in light of who Christ is and um, the grace that's necessary to lead a congregation in worship. Um, I'm very encouraged by those things. Um, things that um, things that discourage me would be, you know, maybe still as I, as I step back and look at the landscape as a whole, and it's hard, I'm speaking just about an American lens, a North American lens, would be um, primarily either a bent toward pragmatism or a bent toward existentialism. 
And of course, there would be unhealth in either of those. This is why it's so important this conversation of gospel-centered worship um, be propelled. I, I feel like it's just beginning because pragmatism leads us to um, just walking through motions and doing certain things to demand responses from those things, and that there's no life in that. There's no John 15 being tethered to the vine and rooted in Christ and abiding. Existentialism, uh, when I use that word, what I mean is certain streams of the modern praise and worship movement that is so wrapped up in experience and in um, almost a seance kind of approach to worship where you're just repeating one line again and again or um, uh, playing the same progression for so long in, in order to evoke an emotional response that oftentimes the worship leader becomes like the prophets of Baal, like, like hailing God down from the sky in that environment. And neither of those are a healthy approach to biblical worship. And that's why when I say we overestimate or overvalue singing in congregational worship, those are the kind of tendencies that, that I often see happen. And so this is why, again, the more we appreciate um, the vastness of congregational worship, by vastness I mean from scripture readings to prayers to confession to thanksgiving to assurance to um, uh, I mean, from invocation to illumination to benediction, knowing that there is there's a lot of things going on when the people of God gather and open up His Word. And at the center of all of this, you do have God's Word open in the midst of His people, um, which ultimately is the only thing we need. We, all, all that's necessary for Christian worship to happen is God's Word laid open in the midst of His people. And to hear in this revelation and response rhythm— the voice of God and the voice of his people um, responding to his truth. Awesome. Very, very good. Now, how does, how does this tie in your mind to the Great Commission? Um, and, and, and what I have in my mind actually in this question is actually maybe talking a little bit about um, the practical side of a musician's life or a musician's ministry to um, in missionality, the Great Commission, you know, thinking outside of um, the church building, and um, is there a role for a uh, a Christian musician in a context that's not necessarily collective congregational worship? I mean, absolutely. I think uh, so. All of this propels the mission of God. Um, when we talk about theology, theology is meant to propel the mission of God. When we talk about doxology, doxology is intended to propel the mission of God. That that is. These things lead to that. That's not their ultimate aim, but these these things um, innately lead to the mission of God. They innately lead to. Um, I'll talk about the gathering for a moment, and then I'll get quickly out of there. But when we when we gather, even through a lens of God centered worship, of theocentric worship, that still is a form of evangelism. That's us declaring to God who He is. While you see this in Psalm 96, you see this in Psalm 67, you see it in 105. While the nations listen in on us declaring how good God is, how faithful God is, how patient God is. I mean, so there is a, an evangelistic, there is a missional side to, to the gathering, uh, to our lives, um, specifically pertaining to musicians. Um, 
my only exhortation to musicians being involved outside the church through the lens of mission is that there is gospel proclamation. So you, you can't you can't assume that you're a Christian missionary as a musician um, in a secular place if the gospel is never proclaimed. Uh, what I mean by that is going into a bar and playing, which which is great, and playing your own music for half an hour, love songs to your wife and songs about, you know, whatever it would be, um, is not a musician being missional if, gospel, if the gospel is never proclaimed from their lips. And I, I don't mean on stage, because I realize that's not the primary reason that they're there. It could be, but whatever the reason being. But we have to remember that even as a musician, even as main, perhaps mainly an instrumentalist, uh, you are not a missionary in that context until the gospel is proclaimed. There, is, there must be uh, a proclamation of the gospel in order for you to be a missionary in whatever context you're in. Yeah. Very good. I think that happens yeah. very effectively outside of, of the walls of the church. I mean, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not truly a musician. I know lots of musicians. And because I know so many musicians, I don't count myself in their number because they're so talented. Um, I'm decent at, at writing lyrics and melodies, and that's about it. But um, I do consider myself a missionary outside of our church and how I coach my girls' soccer team and in relationships that I'm having with people uh, in my own neighborhood and regularly sharing with them uh, who God is and who man is, who Christ is, and how we respond to that truth. Fantastic. Yeah, I know that um, obviously in a, in a corporate worship setting, there's no question about the gospel proclamation from the platform, through the music, through the melody, through the lyrics. Um, in fact, we had Joe Day on the podcast recently, and one of the things they say at Mars Hill is clarity over creativity. And um, really helpful just measuring line there, you know, but even outside of the church walls, I, I do believe your whole life has to kind of live under that clarity over creativity, because how will they know unless they hear? So very good, very good, very good. Yeah. One final question for you. Um, with all of the, the current stuff happening through the Gospel Coalition, and, the, and, and you mentioned some exciting things coming up and, and the future growing and all of that, what is the... Um, what does the future look like in terms of music business and how some of that's changing? I know the internet has really changed, obviously, the way record labels and all of that works. So you've, you've been a, a signed, published uh, songwriter for Word um, for some time now. I think you're with Lifeway now. But um, talk to us a little bit about the commerce side and how that's coming more into the church now. And, and if, if you can speak to that, I know that's a huge subject, but uh, basically would love to hear a little bit about your thoughts going forward. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think this is one of the most dangerous things when you talk about what encourages you and what discourages you. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about these two sides real quick. On, on one hand, uh, Scripture is very clear, a uh, workman is worthy of his hire. And so there is um, biblical precedent for musicians making their living by being musicians, okay? Um, specifically to those who write songs that are sung in churches, which is the easiest thing for me to speak to. Um, it's difficult, I think, today to write a song without having that in view of how many how many churches could sing this song, or what artist could sing this song, or um, I, I'm glad that our church will sing this song, but I, it, that's not enough. I want more and more churches to be singing my song. And so when we do that, we create this 
this reality that does not exist. So I, we need to be making great art, right? Because God is full of creativity. And I mean, what Joe said about Marshall, that means a lot because those guys are so creative. I'm not near that creative musically, so I don't have to worry through that lens. Um, but I, I think that's wonderful that they're so committed to clarity above creativity. Um, I, I think for worship leaders who are writing songs for the church, it should be enough that, that you would be like, just like a preacher. He's writing a sermon for his church that we should just be content writing songs for our congregations. And if the Lord sees that those songs would go further than that, then, then praise God. But that's something we're going to continually have to be dealing with as, as musicians who write songs for churches to sing. One of the hardest conversations that I've had with a guy was with a worship leader who was given a record deal, and then he lost it. And I remember seeing him. I was speaking at a, at a conference, and he was there. And um, I had dinner with him. And I said, I said, bro, I, I love you, but we don't need your songs. The church doesn't need your songs. So to complete the idea, we, we do need to be people who are writing new songs of expression and of truth and clarity. And at the same time, realize that the church has thousands of songs that are every bit as effective as the songs we would be writing. So again, this comes to just having a balanced view of writing songs for the church. Uh, God's, not, God's church is not nourished through whether I write a song or not. God's church is nourished by his word. God's church is not led by a church uh, by a song that I sing. God's church is led by Christ. And so I think for those who do write songs for the church, we have to be very careful. We have to guard our hearts, realizing that the songs that we sing on Sunday are not the most important thing happening. And I think the more we walk in a realistic view of, of art and culture and songwriting and congregational worship, then the more... Uh, the more appropriate the task becomes, the more uh, clear the task becomes. Uh, we, we don't over-romanticize it or devalue it. I don't, I don't mean to devalue this conversation either, uh, but there's a holding in right place that we have to contend for. Very good. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, brother. Where, where can people go to find out more about the book, the new book, and, and your site? And... Um, how would you encourage folks to find that? Yeah, the website is doxologyandtheology.com. Uh, the new book by the same title is available at Amazon or Lifeway or Family Christian Stores. Um, and I hope those things are a helpful resource to continuing these kinds of conversations uh, through worship leaders from all around the country who are, are careful thinkers. Very good, man. Hey, thanks for being on the podcast today. Good to talk to you, buddy. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Conversations like these are very encouraging to me. It's it's awesome to see all that God is doing through um, this movement. And um, our our own church here is a church that draws a lot from guys um, in this in this camp. Um, you know, the the Gospel Coalition is really um, a, an awesome resource for those of you who are leaders in the church, and I think for everyone really. Because here's the thing: theology simply means the study of God. That's it. I think um, we have overcomplicated it more times than we should have. Um, 
it's divisive. Oftentimes, it can be the the kind of thing that people just they don't want to go there. Um, they're scared to talk about it with other people around, you know, because of uh, disagreements or whatever. But it's, it's it's simply the study of God, and so every Christian, every person of faith, is a theologian at some level. Um, the question is: is are they giving themselves to studying God and and learning from His Word and putting that above everything else? Because that is what informs your worship, and that's what what Matt is really saying through this, is that your your knowledge of God is going to prompt and propel how you respond to God. And it's so important. And if you're a worship leader, if you're a music maker, a songwriter, you may not write songs for the local church, um, but your understanding of who God is and the richness and the vastness, the greatness of who he is, um, is going to greatly affect your creativity, it's going to greatly affect the way you write songs and the way you respond to him in, in worship. And so that's why this this stuff is so vital. And um, because the, the measure of your understanding of God is, is going to um, affect the measure of of the richness of your own material that you, you put out. So a shallow view of God is going to make for some shallow music. We'll just put it that way. I'll have links to these things in our show notes today. So christianmusicblog.com slash session nine, and that's the numeral nine, session number nine. Now, I want to give away this book. So I'm going to make this super, super easy for you. All you have to do is email me, nate at christianmusicblog.com. I'll enter you into a drawing. Uh, just, just make sure in the subject line of your email you say uh, doxology and theology, free book, Something like that, just so I'll know you're you're wanting to get into the drawing, and um, and then we'll see who wins, and I'll get you a free copy. So, want to serve you guys, uh, especially those of you who are worship leaders in your local churches. All right, this has been a great great time. I, I am so excited about this conversation and many more to come uh, that I want to share with you. The CMB podcast exists to serve people of faith who make music. Uh, people of faith who are making music, who are learning about creativity, learning about hard work, learning about inspiration, learning about how to bring glory and honor to God through their craft. And um, I'm learning as well. This is not just me talking to you like I got all the answers. That's for sure not the case. Um, we're learning from each other. So make sure that you join our mailing list so that you are receiving all the updates on the new site that's coming soon and all the podcasts that are being released, all the episodes. Um, I have a gift for you if it's your first time, and you can sign up for our email list right there at freemusicgift.com. Freemusicgift.com. May God bless you in your music making this week. So excited to have you join me. Thank you for being a part of this. And uh, I look forward to, to getting more of your emails, to hearing from you, and to at some point meeting you face-to-face. I would like to tell you how that will happen at some point. Uh, But for now, I will let you go, and we will see you next time here at the CMB Podcast. Thank you for listening to the CMB Podcast. For more valuable content, including helpful articles and video, visit christianmusicblog.com.